Hey there, welcome to Shoot the Flick. I'm Frankie Sparks. And I'm Scott Eisenberg. And we are a married couple like to shoot the shit about movies. That we do, that we do. And this week, we are celebrating Father's Day. Woo! And we have a very special guest today, my father, Hal Eisenberg. All right. I am so happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me again. And finally, like, I've been waiting to do this movie for a super, super long time. So I'm excited to get started. (laughs) My father has been asking us to do this movie basically since we started this podcast. And I had never heard of it before he said the name of it. So how did you never hear of this movie? Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good sign. I've never heard of a movie. So this week, in continuation of Music Month, we are covering Eddie and the Cruisers from 1983. Yes. A cult classic, I would say, because it flopped in the movie theater, but found new life on cable. That's exactly what happened. HBO was like taking off and we all as teenagers just honed in on this music movie and it took off and then it was re-released in theaters again. Yeah, I think I read somewhere, the director said they released it about two months too late because they released it in September when all the kids went back to school. Yeah, exactly. Dad, why is this one of your favorite movies and why did you want us to talk about it so bad? Yeah, let's, let's start there with this little mystery of this movie. That is a loaded question. First of all, I feel like as a musician... There's like must-see movies, right? And I feel like Eddie and the Cruisers is just one of those must-see movies. And it's like the perfect storm. Like the movie is not just like a fantastic music movie that has nailed like the life of what it really is like to be in a band. But it's got this subtle spirituality aspect. It's got, you know, a little bit of a love story. It's got this idea of like chasing dreams and what does that look like? And going against the grain of life and trying to do and create something different. And that's kind of like everything I stand for in my life. I mean, when this movie came out, I was 13 years old and it totally inspired me. And I still like live up to the lessons that I learned in Eddie and the Cruises. I feel like you're going to be mad. I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny you say that. I was like, I have a feeling Frankie's not going to like this movie, but I was like really prepared to go to battle with you. No. Because <laughs> last time you were on, we did Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And not that we like went to battle, but we both had very differing views on it. <laughs> but I feel like this is going to be bat all over again. But it, that was fun. Well, so. you know what? It, I think that's totally okay, right? Like, you know, it's the beauty of music. Some people are drawn to certain things and some people aren't. And that's the beauty of art, right? So, like, I think it's totally okay that we have different opinions. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I know before watching this again, I had seen it before, but I didn't remember any of it. There were a couple of times when, like, we would be watching the movie and you'd be like, oh, yeah, this happens. (laughs) I forgot. Eddie and the Cruisers is, as we said, a music movie starring Michael Perry and Tom Berenger. Oh, God. Yeah. But there are two big stars and uh, I've seen Michael Pare in other movies. I haven't. The guy literally, I looked him up and he literally has like 
over 200 acting credits and I didn't recognize any of them except for this one. And there's a sequel to this movie, which I don't understand why it made no money. I think the sequel is also a cult classic. I think they had to like cash in on that. I know that I'll never get an episode with Shoot the Flick with the sequel. So I might like sneak in some like shots on the sequel as well. (laughs) I mean, that's fine. I watched a couple clips and I thought I was watching like As the World Turns. This whole movie is like, it's got very soap opera-y vibes and we'll talk about it. (laughs) The movie was directed by Martin Davidson and he also co-wrote the film. He bought the rights to the novel, Eddie and the Cruisers, written by P.F. Klug. He was quoted as saying he wanted to get all of his feelings about the last 30 years of rock music into one movie which as i watched the movie is very apparent that that's what this is and that is the only goal of the film it does it i guess if that was the goal but i mean i'm sure there was also a goal of like being good and that is questionable but i mean you know whatever i'm trying to be nice (laughs) is it working i don't know but i'm trying (laughs) i don't think it's working no and it's okay (laughs) I think I have a different lens on the movie because, you know, I've been in the music world for like so long, right? I know what it's like to fight in a band and work through it and want to do something that's like different in the world, you know? And I felt like that's what this movie was going for. I mean, the, the album went triple platinum, you know? And there's a lot of like, talk you know around Michael Perret and and how brilliant because you know he's lip syncing in the movie and lip syncing is one of those artistic techniques that sometimes is really hard to nail you can watch a movie and someone's lip syncing and you're like oh my god that sucks it's obvious they're lip syncing you didn't think that it was obvious that he was lip syncing I did not think it was obvious and I think he nailed John (laughs) Cafferty's voice Jesus Christ we can't agree on one thing we're not going to agree on anything in this. This is so bad. <laughs> I thought it was glaringly obvious he was lip singing. Literally, the movie opens with this guy, quote unquote, singing. And his mouth movements are like so exaggerated. He's got the biggest mouth, like physically, of anyone I've ever seen on film. Oh, God. Like, you know, agree to disagree, I suppose. Now, the thing is, what I was thinking throughout this movie. I think it's more of, like, commentating on everyone has this, like, oh, the past. The past is so great. Let's look back at the past. Let's look back at Eddie Wilson. But it's clearly saying, like, no, the past wasn't really great. It was fine. But, you know, there were a lot of shit that we just kind of, like, rose-tinted glasses just gloss over. Yeah. I will say it was also, like I said, written by Martin Davidson along with and Arlene Davidson, they said that the structure for the script was inspired by Citizen Kane. What? What the fuck? Which I thought was a lofty claim, even before I watched the movie. And then after I watched it, I understand what they're trying to say, because it's a mystery and a very mysterious person. But it's like, no, you're not Citizen Kane. There was one line in the movie that was literally my favorite line, and it's just, I don't remember who says it, but one of the guys in the band just goes like, we ain't great, we're just a bunch of guys from New Jersey. And it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> that was Sal. That was Sal Amato, yeah. Sal Amato has some great one-liners. There's actually a YouTube video of Matt Lawrence, who plays Sal Amato, and Michael Perret 30 years later, doing some Eddie and the Cruises convention, and they're being interviewed. And it's so weird, talk about 
just energy and how people click on camera. Um, and Frankie, you probably won't agree with this either, but they totally have that same energy, like in person together, feeding off of each other that I thought they, they had in the movie. You're right. We don't agree on that either. <laughs> I think no one had any chemistry in this movie, actually. <laughs> like even the romance, no chemistry. Eddie had a little chemistry, I would say, with Frank, who's Tom Berenger. But that's about it. Even though I didn't like, because literally the beginning of the movie is them meeting and he looks over at Tom Berenger, who at that point is like 35 years old. And he's like, come here, kid. Let's see what you got. And it's like, he's 35 years old. Like, okay, it doesn't look right. And the other thing that we kept laughing about throughout the movie is for some reason, they like gave Joey Pants like a weird nose. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So Joe Pantoliano plays like the band's manager. And the second he comes on screen, he has like a prosthetic nose or something going on that's not his face it's weird i don't know why <laughs> yeah i don't know why they did that at all that's a really good question i i felt like a lot of the movie was going for i i hate to say this but i felt like there was like a little undertone of like some italian stereotype well eddie's accent was like appalling <laughs> Okay. It was like Danny Zuko in Greece. But I do not know. I mean, maybe uh, maybe there's two of us, right? Why, why, why don't you take out a missing persons ad or, or try the yellow pages? I don't know. Which is not the only Greece reference I will be making this episode. The one thing that I can, like, appreciate about it is that, like, clearly the people that made this movie wanted to be true and authentic to the music. Like, they had a real rock band playing all the songs it's called uh john cafferty and the beaver brown band even the sax player in that band is the sax player in the movie so clearly some care was taken in regards to the music however i found most of the songs pretty forgettable but they're not bad except one which we'll talk about but yeah they were mostly all fine <laughs> i can't believe you said that so like yeah i mean i feel like this episode is going to be like hal versus frankie <laughs> I know we're really going to fight, but it's fine. And Scott's in the middle. <laughs> Some of the music you're right is like the remakes. And, and I've done a lot of those tunes in, in my own band. And matter of fact, I, I, the song you're probably referencing, you know, uh, which I think might be one of the songs that you like, which was the, the biggest hit off that album was literally the first song that I tried to do in a live band when I was in high school. And I totally realized when I played that song that I didn't know how to count to four. You know, every drummer needs to learn how to count to four. And I was like so offbeat. And I was, I remember as a kid being frustrated, like, oh my God, I'm never going to learn drums because I couldn't get that song now. Obviously, fast forward and a thousand shows later, like I finally learned how to play that song. But that song, when I look at the lyrics, those lyrics like totally moved me. I mean, that might be the hopeless romantic side of me, but I, I love those lyrics, but I'll hold off on making comments about that until you bring that up later on. <laughs> By the way, did you know that Jeff Goldblum like tried out for this part for Eddie? Oh, really? Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting. <laughs> that would have been, I think, scarier. <laughs> well, it's also funny. Apparently Rick Springfield also wanted the role, who was like an actual... Singer? Like rock star singer in the 80s that also acted because he was on General Hospital, a soap opera, wink, wink. And the director was like, no, 
but it's like why not it's like literally everything you want a rock star that can act like why would you say no i don't know just see and he can actually sing so you don't have to even have weird mouth movement guy Michael pretending Barry. to sing you could have him actually singing would have been interesting but that's not the movie we got so we start out with on the dark side the biggest hit probably of this whole movie <laughs> It's the one song that I still actually have on my Spotify playlist. It was a a top 10 hit in 1984 after this movie kind of went on cable and found new life. Got up to the top 10. It's a good song. They play it multiple times in the movie. I don't remember it at all, really. That's the hopeless romantic side I was talking about before, even though it's not a ballad. It's like the dark side is calling now. Nothing's real. She'll never know how I feel from out of a shadow. She walks like a dream. Makes me feel crazy. Makes me feel so mean. As a kid, I was like, my brain was blowing up. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I do like the lyrics to it because the thing in the movie Eddie, who's Michael Perry, is seen as the music guy. And then Frank, who's Tom Berenger, is the lyrics guy. And there's a lot of attention put on the fact that, like, they need each other to make good music together. Because lyrics need music and music needs lyrics. So they are yin and yang. Which makes what happens later in the movie kind of fucking stupid and bullshit. But we'll get there. (laughs) I feel like the flashbacks... Okay, because this movie is a bunch of, like, flashback, flash forward back to where we are in the present. I feel like sometimes they don't pick the right scenes for that. Like, I would have liked to seen that conversation with Eddie and Tom Barringer. Yeah. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, instead we have a present day retelling of that to some news reporter lady. You could have chosen to do, I mean, I think this is what they were trying to do, but it maybe not executed as well. You have like the present day as kind of like your skeleton and then the majority of the movie can be flashbacks because the entire movie is just guys and gals talking about how great music was back in the 60s and how great life was and everything was wonderful and everything sucks now. So if everything is so wonderful back in the 60s, then have the movie be in the 60s for the most part and then that's fine. Like it just seems like the flashback to present day ratio is off as well as the dialogue to music ratio in this movie there's a lot of talking about music and not a lot of playing music it feels like because really the movie's called eddie and the cruisers but the main character is not eddie which also seems weird to me but whatever um (laughs) but yeah tom berenger is basically the main character in the film Frank and the Cruisers doesn't have the same ring as Eddie and the Cruisers. You could have just called it something else. <laughs> just call it the Cruisers. You, you could have called it just the Cruisers, or you could have called it, which it, the basically is the theme of the movie, which is, ah, uh, weren't the 60s great? As I said, we started with this performance of On the Dark Side, and we pull forward into present day, which is a newsroom where we're talking about basically Eddie and the Cruisers and what we're going to do. Can we find these missing tapes? Is Eddie alive? Is he dead? Um, okay. So this was not the best way to start the movie with like a 10 minute boring scene of just people talking. Okay. First, it wasn't made clear because they said that they re-released Eddie and the Cruisers first album. So now there's like a fucking new surge of Eddie and the Cruisers, right? 
which on one hand, I can understand that because there are kind of resurgences of older songs, especially nowadays. It's like, oh, there was a cool 80s song in the new Stranger Things episode. So now everyone's playing that song or, you know, something like that. Like it's from some other media. But they never really make it clear why they re-released the first album 20 years after the guy died. Like, I don't know. Not even 20 years. I think 18 years. So it do- it's not really made clear. But for some reason, Eddie and the Cruisers is like hot shit again. So they're like, we must investigate. And this lady, the the news reporter lady, which her only purpose is just to like annoy all the band members to try and figure out if Eddie is still alive. Because 18 years prior, he literally drove himself off of a bridge and then he disappeared. They never found the body. Right. Very soap opera-y. And they're talking about that he could still be alive. And she brings up this poet, Ram- Rambo. Yes. Like, oh, this specific poet had a poem named Seasons in Hell. And he faked his death and then came back years later or something like that. And the lost album that Eddie and the Cruisers never fully released was called Straight... Uh, what was Seasons it again? In Seasons in Hell. So that clearly means that Eddie's still alive. And it's like... That's kind of a stretch, ma'am. <laughs> that's that's a stretch. And yeah, that starts the movie. And then they never talk about it again until halfway through the movie that like, oh, Eddie might be alive. So it just seemed odd. I, I agree with you. That first scene was totally a stretch. I remember I've seen the movie hundreds of times. I've seen that movie. I was like, this is weird because I remember at that time, Elvis had just died like maybe five years earlier. And there was all this like, buzz in the news is Elvis alive is Elvis alive which is like a big joke now but then people were like taking it seriously so when that movie came out that first scene and they I think they made a reference to Jim Morrison and Elvis and and I was like what are they doing are they like capitalizing on like present day type of gossip uh so actually yeah we cut to the Jersey Shore 1962 yes Eddie and the cruisers pull up to this random bar in New Jersey and they're like tell your boss Eddie and the cruisers are here oh but there's so much more to that scene Scott okay the scene is weird the scene is fucking weird Frank is working in the bar and he's just like closing up for the night right he's sweeping or mopping or whatever he's doing he's just minding his own business and then all of a sudden this girl walks in dead silent and just stands there and it's like for a good 10 <laughs> seconds is silent and she's like hi and then he frank's like hi and then slowly but surely one by one all the members of this band and there's quite a few of them just walk in and say nothing and just stand there and he's looking like are you guys gonna rob me what the fuck are you gonna chop me up in little pieces like it was very weird and unnecessarily like threatening <laughs> i didn't understand what was happening <laughs> I think they were trying to set up, we think who we are. We're the badass band that's coming in and we're the epitome of cool. (laughs) Eddie's whole personality. I'm so cool. You guys don't understand me. (laughs) I'm misunderstood, man. That's also the thing. There is no real transition between the 60s and 80s. We just kind of cut back and forth. Yeah, we just cut back and forth. And it's more difficult because all these actors are just playing themselves both in the 60s and the 80s. And it's not like they look any younger, obviously. So you kind of just have to, like, pick up on context clues. Like, okay, we're in the 60s now. Okay, we're in the 80s now, I guess. And it's like, "Mm, okay. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So we cut back and we meet Frank in the 80s. And Frank has become a poetry teacher. 
Which, like, good on you, though. But the thing is, he's a poetry teacher, and he, like, lives in a trailer just in the middle of nowhere. And then the reporter tries to, like, talk to him, and he basically tells her to fuck off because she's asking about Eddie and, like, if he's still alive. And it's like, okay. She tries for a second to be like, I just want to learn more about the cruisers and what it was like. And then, like, Frank's like, no, I'm not really interested. And she's like, is Eddie still alive? And it's like, whoa. (laughs) Okay, you're not really good at your job. You're not good at finessing people. Oh my god, you guys are so funny. I feel like that was probably also one of my attractions to education, right? He put the music like behind them and there was this supposed resurgence of the music, right? Because when he pulls up to the school, Eddie and the Cruises is like on the radio, right? They have that like clip, you know, and the DJ is Mm -hmm. saying like, hey, like Eddie and the Cruises back. It's almost like he doesn't want that chapter in his life, but it was really always about the poetry and the lyrics, right? You know, but the music was gone, right? He was word man without the music, you know, and he just decided to live a simple life and teachers don't make a lot of money. So again, I felt like it was like that contrast being set up. I feel like they were trying to set up a storyline of letting go of the past and not being able to let go of the past. Mm -hmm. Because clearly all these people from the cruisers as we introduce them, are still holding on to that time frame from 1962 to 64, and they can't let it go. A hundred percent, Scott. And you know what I think? I think it's also interesting going back to that Arthur and Bo like opening with Maggie the reporter. That was like one of those like set up spiritual lines, like Arthur and Bo committed suicide, not of the flesh, but of the mind and the soul. It's like that whole thing, like. I'm trying to get rid of the past, but can I get rid of the past? It's like still haunting me. I felt like that was like a theme throughout the movie, or at least what they were trying to reach for. Yeah, I thought so too throughout most of the movie, which is why, A, I didn't think Eddie was alive because I felt like it was just going to undercut that whole message if Eddie ended up being alive all this time. And also... That's why I had a big issue with the ending, not the very, very end. I don't want to spoil it because I guarantee you a lot of people probably haven't seen this movie. So I don't (laughs) want to spoil it, but not the very, very end. I actually didn't have, well, I had a little problem with that, but not as big as just the end of the movie. I thought it kind of undercut the whole previous message of the film but we'll get there yeah i got what you're saying with that for sure i remember being a kid and the first time seeing the ending i was like what the fuck did i see what i thought i saw (laughs) i needed to watch it again like (laughs) it is definitely interesting so now we cut back to the 1962 where they are at tony's place which is the bar and they're practicing and having a discussion about the music and how they're playing way too fast. Yeah, this is the Sisora scene. Yes. And you have Eddie who's trying to explain that he's just saying words. He's not getting meaning behind it. And, of course, he brings in Frank and Frank. Hey, kid, come over here. <laughs> hey, hey, 40-year-old kid, come here. <laughs> oh, my God, I can't. Anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, he's like, yeah, the song needs a dramatic pause. And Eddie's yes. like, yeah, see what I'm saying? It needs a dramatic pause. And then they become yeah, BFFs and... <laughs> You know, the rest is history. And Sal's a little mad. Sal's whole personality in the movie is jealousy, which is fine. But, like, there are a couple points in the movie where they try to be like, I'm your best friend and I love you, man. 
But it's like you don't really because <laughs> 20 years later, you're like making a lookalike go on stage and like using the songs that he made to make a little chunk of change. Like it just seems yucky. But <laughs> Sal in general seems kind of yucky. I will give you this as a musician. I did think there was something off with that scene because, you know, he's never spoken to the kid before. He has this big wild moment with the kid. You know, Sal's all jealous. And then he turns around and he goes, okay, kid, you can stay. And I'm like, how do we know if this kid could even play? Like, he just had a moment. Like, is he even a musician? You know, and all of a sudden he's this great piano player. Like the next flashback scene, they do cut to like them on the roof. Yeah. Well, well, he has to be good at the piano instantly, Scott, because he's the main character. So he has to pick up piano almost instantly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's established in the beginning that he can play like a little bit. But then by the time they start playing together, he's like a genius or whatever the fuck. But it's always funny because Joey Pants, the manager, who is uh, Doc, Doc Robbins, and Sal just like make fun of him for like the entire time they're like what is this kid like what are we bringing this kid around for for the record in case everyone listening is like who the hell is joey pants it's, it's joey pantsiliano it's that guy that you know from like every movie under the sun he was in bad boys memento the matrix just like he's one of those that guys yeah like look him up and you'll know who he is just to put it out there he's the only person i recognize other than tom berenger <laughs> Everyone else is like nobodies. Half the people in this movie don't have their pictures up on IMDb. <laughs> That's how well known they are. I, I love the scene later on. And you're probably going to get to this later on. Going back to Betty Lou's, you know, has a new pair of shoes where like Sal is annoyed. I love that how they set up the scene. Like when they flash back, to, they come back to the 80s and like Sal's like doing a cover band and he's still doing the song like freaking super fast, you know? Yeah. We also established that the whole, like, houses being ransacked part of the movie, yes. which is so weird. Okay, so <laughs> one day when Frank, who's Tom Berenger, he comes home from teaching, and he opens the door, and everything in his house is, like, ransacked. And he has no reaction. Literally, he's just like, oh. And then that's it. And I'm like, wait. The house is fucked up, right? Or is he just really messy? And Scott's like, no, no, the house was ransacked. I'm like, why is there no reaction to that? <laughs> I was like, okay, whatever. But then later on, he meets up with Doc, who's Joey Pants. And he explains to Frank that his house has also been ransacked. And I'm like, at that point, I'm like, why is no one taking this seriously that people are breaking into their house? Apparently, according to Joey Pants, somebody's breaking into houses looking for the tapes of the last Eddie and the Cruisers album that they want to release or whatever. And I'm like, is no one taking it seriously that people are breaking into your house? And then later, another character says, oh, someone broke into my house. I'm like, does someone know the number for 911? <laughs> like, <laughs> are we not taking that? And then she's also getting phone calls from a mysterious person. It's like, okay, clearly you're being stalked and accosted. But I guess the cops don't care or you don't care to call the cops. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> I see that. Yeah, I always thought those scenes were kind of weird, too. And they kind of, like, rushed through it. They're just to, like, paint the fact that they were building the mystery. Like, who is this? And then and then you got Joanne Carlino, who 
I love as an actress. It's Helen Schneider. And she's more famous doing all her stuff in Germany, but like she has to slowly building up. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it might actually really be Eddie because in the beginning they're like, Eddie's not alive. This report is an idiot. Like Eddie, they just never found the body. And she brings back that mystique of like, oh my God, like somebody's stalking me. And it might be this guy who's been dead for 30 years. It's a zombie. So Joey Pants, Doc, has called Frank to bring Frank in and have the whole discussion about the past. He's now a radio DJ. One of many, 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 many discussions about the past. <laughs> and they're fine, but it's just like Doc is clearly still trying to angle because he's like, dude, if I can get those tapes, we can fucking make money off that. And Frank's like, I have fucking no clue. I didn't have them. And this leads Frank to a journey to basically find all the members of the band like we're the Muppets. Yeah, that's what's kind of confusing about it because after that first scene where they bring up the idea that he could possibly be alive, they don't bring it up until like another like maybe 30, 40 minutes into the movie. So in that time, it's just a bunch of guys, you know, wandering around talking about how great the past was and once in a while you get a song and they're talking about the tapes and trying to find them but there's not a lot of urgency in that so it kind of leads to the story kind of just ambling along like it's kind of boring at times which I mean biopics sometimes can be boring depending on the story structure but you know this is test the structure of citizen kane so this should just be you know a tension filled mystery that is keeping us on our toes <laughs> so the next member of the band we get to meet is sal and sal is in an eddie and the cruisers tribute band basically playing all the songs. He's got an Eddie Wilson lookalike. And this is kind of gross. It just felt yucky, yeah. And maybe I would feel differently if there wasn't a lookalike. But, like, at one point, they're singing one of the slow songs. And everyone's got their lighters out. Sal is just, like, basically crooning to the crowd saying, like, Oh, I miss Eddie so much. And, oh, I know he's here with me. And it's just yucky. It feels yucky. But he's his best friend. It's weird. Yeah, I think that scene was meant to be yucky. It's definitely one of my least favorite scenes, like musically in the movie. And again, I think they did it on purpose to paint that contrast to show, you know, Sal didn't get the bigger message, right? He was not understanding like what Eddie was going through. And even though Eddie was his best friend, like, here I am, I'm, I'm still going to, like, go out and play the music, you know, my way. And I think that's why that scene was so kind of yucky i think it was designed that way and so you know they go backstage and you know sal is so happy that to see word man and they're talking about the reporter and they kind of like you know starts to paint this picture of like you know they, they want to find these lost albums you know but we're not going to see a dime from that you know they're going to find a way to screw us like they always do you know and there's that one quote guys like you and me they strike oil under your garden and then all you get is dead tomatoes and i was like from a music angle, I'm like, great quote, right? Because it talks about how the industry screws over, like, talent. But it just continues, like, it builds up into that yuckiness of just like, hey, 
Like, I'm just going to try and make a quick buck and we're not going to see anything out of this. Right. But I think from his perspective, he kind of just feels like he got screwed over by the band or by Eddie, at least in a way where he felt like he had a lot of talent and that wasn't really appreciated in the band. And then when Eddie died, you know, that was it. But that's the same thing with everybody. Everybody kind of had to go their own way because Eddie was the face of the band. Yeah. We get like a big performance from Zal. He does two songs here. He does, as Frankie said, the slower kind of like emotional song. Again, he's here with us. But then he also does Wild Summer Nights. Well, the slower one, Tender Years, was actually my favorite song of the movie. Yes, I enjoyed that one. And they did that twice. They did it once, I think, with Eddie singing it, and then once with the girl singing it, the girl in the band, who I I hate the idea that, like, girls in bands are just relegated to backup singing or shaking a tambourine. Like, that's annoying, but, like, that's not her fault, obviously. It's just, like, whatever. But that's a little nitpick, I guess, compared to all the other stuff I have issues with. But, yeah, Tender Years is my favorite. And then there was a faster one called Wild Summer Nights, which offended me. <laughs> <laughs> I literally had to Google. I'm like, when did Grease come out? Oh, 1978. So they're basically just aping off of Grease. They made a shittier Summer Nights. Summer days drifting away They'll do that. Don't try to be Grease. <laughs> That's so funny you say that. I never saw that angle. And now I got to go back. I was listening to, to the soundtrack this morning, actually. I was listening to Wild Summer Nights and the drumming at the end as a drummer. I'm like, I love this. These kind of like funky beats and, and fills at the end, you know. But going back to what you said about Joanne Carlino, I think that was a great... I don't know if you want to call it woman's lib because of the year that he came out, but like her taking the mic was a big thing. And I love that version of Tender Years, you know, which is not on any of the albums. And she sounds great. Helen Schneider singing that. And Helen Schneider was actually a recording artist. We do flash back to this college performance. And it's funny to me because, yeah, Frank and joanne is supposed to be connecting here they have no chemistry 0.0 percent <laughs> chemistry and then they make out literally right in front of eddie i don't know if that's how it's supposed to look i think because scott was like no i think they're supposed to be off to the side somewhere but it doesn't look like that it looks like eddie's sitting down somewhere and then he looks out like maybe like five feet from him and they're making out and i'm like that seems ill-advised but all right <laughs> It's literally a horrible scene. I'm like, first of all, I'm like, that's number one band rule. Like, you know, you, you don't go after your band members, other girls, and then not on top. You're not really slick. The whole band's on the porch there. You don't like look over there to see like. Yeah, they're right there. Yeah, he's right there. And you're like, you guys all of a sudden like are kissing out of nowhere. Yeah, that was always a weird scene to me. <laughs> it's never been like, oh, this is Eddie's girl, except for the fact that she's in the band. There's no scene with the two of them, really. Eddie and her. Yeah, they're supposed to be boyfriend and girlfriend, even though they have even less chemistry than her and Frank. And I'm like, okay, this is your girl. Why? Because you're the leader of the band and she's the only girl? Like, okay. There's no chemistry between them either. Like, nobody has chemistry with anybody. <laughs> it's like, why do we care? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and then we get they play the concert for 
this college crew, and Eddie mad. <laughs> and Eddie's mad, and Eddie's introducing everybody, and he makes fun of Frank. It seems very obvious that, because literally, when we cut back to the present, Frank's talking to the reporter, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we talked the next day, because I said I was going to leave, and then Eddie was like, oh, you know, we need each other. Frank presents it like, oh, they had this bond, and they're BFFs, right? But, like, it's clearly just Eddie manipulating him and using him because he makes good lyrics and he can't do without Frank because their fucking other shit sucked before. (laughs) I hear what you're saying, and it's such a difficult scene for me not to like because that's the whole words and music scene, you know, the crossing of the fingers, which I think you were right. You you said earlier, like, it would have been really great to see that interaction, to see if they actually really did have a chemistry bond because I feel like what they were going for there is like you know Eddie really was about the music so even though he was hurt and he was angry and he was jealous which they kind of tap into a little bit in part two but I won't go there you know I think they were kind of going for that idea that like it's got to be bigger than just me because I really do want to make something different and I do need you as a lyricist so we're going to put the girl ship behind us and we're going to create something together that's what I think they were trying to go for we have to meet the drummer now that scene was so short I don't care I don't even know him Do we even know him? The only thing Kenny, like... I mean, I know you're a drummer. I care about you. But this particular drummer, I don't give a shit about. Because (laughs) he had no role in the movie at all. (laughs) It's just another scene so we can hammer home even more so, hey, weren't the 60s a great time for us as a band? What a time to be alive. Like, we get it. (laughs) We understand. Well, he does go, like... Dude, no, it wasn't. Like, I would have found Wendell OD'd in his fucking bathroom. Oh, yeah, they killed a sax player, which is kind of depressing. And then after he dies, Eddie is so distraught by his death that he can't perform. And meanwhile, in the movie, they had, like, no moment together. Eddie has no personality and no connections with any single solitary person in the movie. So when he is so distraught that he can't play, that's the scene where Joanne has to step to the mic and and step in for him. But, like, it just seems to come out of the clear blue sky. (laughs) I totally hear you on that. But I love saxophone in, in rock songs. And he's an amazing sax player. And I thought that that heroin death scene was pretty powerful. Just that scene in the hotel room, it was uh, showing like the other side of music, but it's still a stretch. You're right. In the, in the movie, they didn't focus on the chemistry between Eddie and the band members. Anytime they do focus on it, Eddie just seems to be an asshole to everybody. If they didn't want to focus on the chemistry between the different people in the band, I can actually even understand that because there's quite a few people in this band. So that would be okay. But if you're not going to, you know, focus at least somewhat on everybody in the band and their connections with each other and with Eddie, then at least focus on Eddie, who's supposed to be the leader of this band and the reason that everything is happening. Like, you can make Frank the main character, but, like, make Eddie the main character, too. He's not the main character in this movie. Finally... We meet Joanne in the present day. Yes. And she reunites with Frank and it's trying to be cute. And like, oh, reunited after so long. And it's like, okay, I still don't feel anything (laughs) between you people. (laughs) 
that was really frustrating to me. I'm like, are they getting together? Like after all these years, like what's the deal? Like, is this true love or not? She basically goes, oh yeah, my house was ransacked too. And someone keeps calling and playing tender years on the phone and then hanging it's up. It's so weird. And then, oh, I keep seeing this strange car that's just like Eddie's car. And I'm like, okay, when are we calling the police? Right. There's a 57 Chevy like hanging outside my house. <laughs> like what the fuck? This is really the point where, like, we start really bringing the idea that, oh, Eddie is alive, possibly. This is the point now where we get back into that. We're like, oh, no. And because we hadn't talked about it in so long, and then that's all they're talking about. I'm sitting there like, is he really fucking alive? Like, I can't. I'm going to fucking leave. <laughs> if he's actually alive, I'm leaving. <laughs> and then they have another flashback to yes. the 60s. Yes, we finally flashback. To right after they have recorded this new album, Seasons in Hell. Which supposedly right after that is when Eddie drove off the bridge and died slash disappeared. Yeah. And the record company exec's like, I don't like this. I can't use this shit. What are you giving me this for? Eddie storms out. Sal blames Frank for everything because, you know, he's jealous of him basically. So <laughs> it's all your fault. But Joanne gets in the car with Eddie and drives off. And I'm like, okay, I have to give the movie credit. I didn't see this part coming. They drive to like this trash property. I don't know how to, I described it as the trash palace, but apparently there is a name for it in the movie that I just missed. It's called the Palace of Depression, which just sounds like how a goth kid in middle school would describe their bedroom. It's basically just like a trash heap with lights and a throne. He is the trash king. <laughs> Annie Wilson is the trash king, and I love it. But it just came out of fucking nowhere, and I was very confused. I love that scene, and I'm trying to remember. Oh, he was having like a meltdown, right? Like sitting on that throne. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's a whole like big thing here where Eddie's like, I'm nothing. Here's to nothing. No one appreciates my genius it's such a great monologue though right because it, it's really painting like the unraveling of this guy who was obviously unstable throughout most of the movie he was a kid and he was like lost and had all this emotional pain and it was like nobody understands me like i failed and i i thought this was my masterpiece and what do I have now, right? If they had characterized Eddie better throughout the movie and gave us something to connect with, like on a deeper personal level and like made him more of like a a relatable character as opposed to kind of just a cardboard cutout rock star kind of guy, I feel like then this scene would have been more powerful because you would have known him more as a person and really felt it more when he was breaking down and whatnot. Again, the ideas behind this movie, I think, are good ideas. I think the execution is lacking. After this, Eddie takes Joanne, drops her off, and then drives off off the bridge. He disappears. He's dead. Mm. You know, that's what everybody thinks. But they never found the body. They never found the body. Which, okay, I'm someone who, you know, growing up, and even to this day, sort of, I have a kind of guilty pleasure situation with soap operas right and you know if someone dies on a soap opera and they say they never found the body then you know they're fucking alive so <laughs> i'm like if he ends up being alive this is legitimately a soap opera and i quit 
<laughs> just putting that out there right now. <laughs> so Joanne and Frank are talking and they're like, so I had to do something for me and I went and took the tapes out for Seasons of Hell. Oh, yeah. And buried them in the Palace of Depression. That also didn't make any sense. This is the point of the movie when I started getting really aggravated because more and more things made no sense. So in order to say goodbye to Eddie, she takes the, the tapes for his rock opera that nobody liked and just not even buries them, just like hides them under the trash throne for 20 years and miraculously it's still there 20 years later. Not a one single solitary soul came across it. Or picked it up. It seems a little far-fetched, sir. <laughs> right. Not moldy and, and perfectly recorded. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll give you that. Like, maybe some of this isn't realistic. <laughs> but uh, Frank and Joanne get go get the tapes and they go back to her house. And there is clearly a car following them as they're leaving the trash palace. And then they go to her house, and again, she gets a call, a mysterious call with some voiceless person playing The Tender Years, and it freaks her right out, and she hangs up, and then they call back again, and she's, like, crying and freaking out, and then the phone rings twice and then stops. So she's like, that's the signal that Eddie used to give me that he's coming over, and I'm like, Oh my God, she's losing it. Oh my God. And then all of a sudden the movie turns into a fucking horror movie. Like she goes running up the stairs in the dark. Frank's downstairs just listening to her talking on the phone to this guy that she thinks is Eddie. And the score like literally turns into a horror movie score. It's like John Carpenter-esque. And I'm like, what is happening right now? Is someone going to fucking murder them? Like what is going on? And for a second there, I was like, Oh my God, it's actually going to be Eddie. So he's going to come in the car. She's going to run out. Frank's going to run after her and Eddie is going to get out of the car. And then I'm going to leave my house because I will have to leave my home. <laughs> I genuinely thought that was good. Because at this point, I mean, this movie is like so like out of pocket. Like I was just like, of course, this is what's going to happen now. Okay, I'm ready for it. Okay. <laughs> And then Frank leaves the house and I'm like, wait, you're just going to leave. She's clearly having a mental breakdown and she's clearly being stalked by somebody and you're just, you're going to leave. I was very confused, but apparently he just got in his car and hid it away, like, and turned the lights off. Like he could hide away. Okay. (laughs) Because he was protecting her. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. (laughs) And then the car pulls up, which is the same car that Eddie used to have. Beautiful car, by the way. Admittedly, a very tense moment because you don't really know what's going to happen. It's very Scooby-Doo. Like, who is it? Who's the stalker? (laughs) And Frank comes running up. He opens the driver's side door, pulls the guy out, and it's Doc. Joey Pants, how could you? (laughs) I was so happy it wasn't Eddie. I was like, oh, my God, thank you. I can't. I can't handle that ridiculousness. Oh, I did like that it wasn't Eddie. And I remember the first time watching it, I was like, all right, like, that's kind of a cool way to wrap it. And I'm sure I don't know if you guys are going into it, because I think you gave like an insinuation before that you didn't like this part, possibly, but it's actually one of my all time favorite quotes in this scene. 
Oh, I'm okay with the fact that the stalker is Doc. I'm very okay with that because it fits. He's basically trying to, uh, you know, squeeze the last bit of money that he can get out of Eddie, who is dead. So it just, yeah, it, it fits with the whole theme of the movie essentially what i didn't like is what happened after that (laughs) (laughs) with the tapes and what joanne says to him yes oh my god (laughs) i wanted to scream at the t i was so confused that's my all-time favorite spiritual quote though (laughs) i'll be honest like i was very wrapped up in like the scandal of it all so i didn't hear everything joey pants said right but i get that essentially he wanted to get the tapes so he could you know play them and make money hooray hurrah right so he thought it was justified that he ransacked people's houses faked his own house being ransacked stalked this poor woman made her believe that he was her dead boyfriend all this crazy stuff it's fine because money okay yeah that's really that's great but then as he's talking (laughs) i see frank and joanne like smiling and i'm like why are you smiling at him he's a fucking terrorist why are you smiling at this man and then they just give him the tapes why okay that's stupid enough they give him the tapes and then joey pants is like this is gonna be for all of us yeah even though like logically speaking it's not it's gonna be exactly what sal said is gonna happen which is that no one's gonna give a shit about us they're gonna be like eddie's the greatest which is what happens so like you know joey pants is full of shit but then as he takes the tapes and gets in the car fucking frank and joanne are like cheering him on so happy like yay everything's fine now i'm like why he just stalked (laughs) the shit out of you broke into your house manipulated your emotions and now he's taking these tapes to make money for himself and not you so i don't know what you're so fucking excited about I actually agree 100% with you, Frankie. Like, you're 100% right. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world that they let this guy, who is the guy that, like, you know, kind of forced the hand of Eddie committing suicide, right? Or or his car going off the bridge, right? So this guy is not a good guy at all, Doc Robbins, right? You know, that aside, there's that exchange, you know, um, where Joanne is like, I once asked Eddie why he kept you around, and you know what he said? He said, Doc's a dreamer and the world needs dreamers. That as a 13 year old kid, you know, that's all I had to hear. And that's when I was like, I'm justified. Like, I love that's my all time favorite spiritual quote in any movie. Like, and I always go around like I'm a dreamer and the world needs dreamers. And that's how we move the planet forward, which I know that might not be what they were going for, but my impressional like little like little version of how was like that's the power of music in movies like i hung up i hang on to that line probably my whole life (laughs) here's how it should have ended it's like clue ready okay so (laughs) so frank and joanne they give doc the tapes that's fine i mean it's stupid but like fine whatever right then doc when he gets the tapes he gives it a good think think and he he changes his mind. He's like, you know what? I don't need this shit. And he throws it on the ground and smashes it because now they can all move on. The past was great and all, but, you know, it's time to move on. Time marches on and all that good stuff. Right. And then that's how the movie ends, because the whole theme of the movie is like, you know, 
we glorify the past because we were like famous or whatever and that was cool but like it wasn't all you know sunshine and rainbows because at this point if you release that album you're capitalizing off of somebody's death and that feels yucky so in the effort of not feeling yucky because it's more important to move on with your life just smash the goddamn record and be done with it (laughs) But no, it didn't end that way. And it went completely against everything we were trying to do this whole movie. And it's like, yeah, you know how we were saying how Sal's cover band felt yucky because we're capitalizing off of someone's death? Let's do that thing that felt yucky 20 minutes ago. (laughs) Now, the only thing I would change about Frankie's thing there is because Frank and Joanne are kind of like this unit now. Which, why, but continue. Uh, I would have them... I'm fine with them giving the tapes to Joey Pants. And then Joey Pants goes, I'm doing this for all of us. And he drives away with the tapes. I think the only thing that really needs to change... Joey Pants drives off a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Joey Pants drives off a bridge. Uh, (laughs) No, uh, I think the only thing that really needs to change is... They don't cheer him on. They just walk away as he drives away. Because they have now moved on. Joey Pants and Sal can still be in their past because yeah. they haven't figured it out. But Frank is like... Well, That's fine, too. That that would be okay. The, yeah, the fact that they're cheering him on is weird. The fact that they're cheering him on after he just stalked them and broke into their homes and, like, made their lives a living hell and then they're like, yeah, you go, Doc. You're the best. Like, no, that doesn't make any fucking sense. If the idea is they can move on with their lives and if you're stuck in the past, then, you know, you're going to be an asshole who capitalizes off of people's death and stalks people in order to get what you want. That can work, too. But it can't work if... You set up the whole theme of the movie as being, you know, the 60s were great, but like now we're all living in squalor. So maybe we shouldn't keep holding on to the past like we are. Maybe we should just move on and like try to find peace with our lives as they are now. (laughs) Now that you guys are making up like how the movie should have ended, you know, taking my Eddie and the Cruiser fan mania out of the conversation. I think I would have liked to have seen like Doc get arrested because he should have been arrested and thrown in jail. Yes. The police are, they don't exist here in this world. I don't understand it. Right, right. They they don't exist in New Jersey at all, apparently. But I would have liked to have seen like Wordman and Joanne be like, be like, all right, like, listen, this is a new chapter in our life. We're together. Like, let's take these tapes and and like we'll we'll do something with it right we'll 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 have like build a career and something and kind of like and end it there right you know but they don't get anything they walk away and they sort of insinuated that they're going to be together that they're finally going to have their love story the scene ends with joanne just standing outside her door and turning to frank and be like come inside and it's like ew why are you guys just together now you haven't been together for 18 fucking years And now you're just magically a couple. You don't have any chemistry together. What is your life going to be? Clearly she's not over Eddie because she just like had a fucking mental breakdown about the fact that he might be alive. So clearly she ain't over that shit yet (laughs) after 20 years. So like, yeah. And and if she stays with him, she's not letting go of the past either. Right. Because she's still with a band member. (laughs) Right. It's just, yeah, that in itself is weird, but. What else is new? This movie's weird. I don't know. But I still love it. <laughs> so now we wrap up. We get our reporter who is 
now got these tapes, and she's talking about how Eddie was ahead of his time. Oh, my God. And the world just wasn't ready for seasons in hell, but now they are, and we can all appreciate the glory that is Eddie Wilson. And and we get our Marvel fucking end credit scene, basically, of the movie, and I, I couldn't <laughs> take it anymore. I was... I... I mm. Which was innovative for 1983, okay? <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh. So the TVs turn off, oh and then God. suddenly the man staring at the TVs is Eddie Wilson just with a beard. It's a fucking soap opera, you guys. <laughs> it is. That's just what it is now. And it's a, like, we, we didn't need this, first of all. Second of all, why? How? Third of all, at this moment of the movie, Frankie threw her pen across the I room. I did. I was writing <laughs> notes because I was so happy. I was like, oh, wow. Because I knew, spoiler alert, I know that the fucking sequel is literally called Eddie Lives. So I'm like, okay. I thought the movie was going to end with him being dead. And then when they decided they were going to make a sequel because it got popular on cable, they're like, okay, well, we can't have Eddie and the Cruisers without Eddie. So let's just make him alive. I thought that was what happens. But no. Turns out they had this planned the whole time that he was just alive. And it's like that added nothing to the story. <laughs> I don't know when they filmed that scene, if they had planned to do a sequel. Because sequels weren't like a gigantic, huge thing at the time. I think they had planned it to just like leave it with that mysteriousness. Because when you see his reflection in the TV, I had to go back and watch the movie again because I was like, I was like, wait, was that Eddie? Because it was like this faded reflection with this guy with a beard. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, it wasn't obvious that that was him. Exactly. To me, anyway. Which is kind of weird, too. But like, like, I get it. The implication is supposed to be like, oh, yes, now he is satisfied with himself because people understand his music. But it's like, you didn't have to do that. First of all, just logically, I find it nearly impossible that a person would be able to fake their death for 20 years especially someone who is so like fly by the seat of their pants making no plans for the future like eddie i don't think that he's some criminal mastermind that could get away with that but let's just pretend for movie magic that that's possible you didn't have to drive off of a bridge because some record asshole said he didn't like your music like the more rebellious and logical thing to do and that way you could still make your fucking music would be, you know what? You don't like my music? Fine. I'm going to take it elsewhere or I'm going to produce it myself and put, you know, I'm going to fucking show you motherfuckers, blah, blah, blah. But no, he just decides. And I bet you a million dollars if the record executive said, oh, I love it. He wouldn't have been driving off the goddamn bridge like Rambo. He would have been like, yay, hooray, hurrah. So it, it irritated me. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for anybody that does want to see the sequel, but they actually explained that a little bit in the sequel and it made a little bit more sense, but they forced that storyline so they, they can make it make sense. Right. I'm assuming. I mean, the sequel to this movie was nominated for a Razzie Award. I think multiple, actually. So let's not hold our breath on things magically making sense in the sequel to this movie. <laughs> However... I did watch like a couple of scenes from the sequel just out of sheer curiosity. It literally does play like a soap opera at points. Like there's a point in the movie where Eddie reunites with Sal because Sal's the only actor that came back for the sequel other than Michael Parry. 
So they reunite and it literally sounds like a fucking soap opera scene because they argue for like maybe two minutes about the fact that he played dead for 20 years and destroyed all of their lives. Then literally two minutes later, he's like, I want you to forgive me, man. And they have a hug and that's the end of the scene. I'm like, (laughs) okay, we got over that pretty quick. Like, I don't, why, why, why did you do that? (laughs) Why did you do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. And I get it at the time of the first movie, he's young or whatever, but it just seems like an incredibly selfish and stupid thing to do, especially in regards to your lyricist, who, according to you, is like the yin to your yang. And you can't make music without each other because music needs lyrics and vice versa. However, you made this choice to fake your death and didn't include your lyricist. So you basically forced your lyricist to live in squalor because fucking Eddie is also living. He looks like a scraggly hot mess in the end credit scene or whatever, the end scene of this movie. So it's like, okay, if you want to do that, that's your business. But you've basically forced all your other band members to live like fucking... (laughs) in a trailer and like do fucking cover band shit that they hate yeah it just seems incredibly selfish like you're not a nice person you're a bad bad guy i don't like you (laughs) and then eddie and the cruisers too he's the main character and it's like why would i want to see that he's horrible (laughs) i don't care about his life it it took six years for eddie and the cruisers two to come out and there's so many that scene you're talking about with Salamato was, was I think, the only, like, really flashback scene to the first movie. You know, because Tom Berger didn't come back, they had to, like, edit Salamato into the beach scene, which was really, really horribly, horribly done if you're, like, an Eddie fan. And, and the movie is not a phenomenal movie, but there's so many great musician scenes in that movie you know one being where like you know nobody knows that he's eddie yet and he this kid this like punk guitarist is trying to get him to be in his band and and he's like i don't want to be in your band and there's this whole scene where they the kid's trying to be flashy with like a guitar solo and Eddie's like no he's like you got to let the music breathe and the way that whole scene is like set up like every musician has to see that scene. It's, it's what music is supposed to be about. And that's what I love about Eddie too. And also the last scene in that movie was filmed at a Bon Jovi concert, you know, just keeping with the New Jersey roots. Just, <laughs> I mean, if anyone out there has, has watched soap operas, they know that people being dead and then coming back to life is kind of a staple. And of course it makes no sense. But when you're watching a soap opera, it's like nothing really is like grounded in reality in a soap opera it's just kind of all bullshit but when it happens in a fucking real movie that's supposed to up to this point like yeah there's been silly things that happen and things that don't make sense like the non-existence of police officers but like it's not so egregiously ridiculous that like you can't follow the story and it, it makes sense right but like when eddie is magically alive at the end it's just like oh okay the shock of it is like, oh my God, that's crazy. But then when you think about it for like more than two minutes, you're like, that's really horrible. Your fucking girlfriend <laughs> is like thinking that you're still alive about talking to you on the phone and you're just alive walking around. <laughs> I don't, you're not a nice guy. You're not a nice guy. Well, yeah. So I don't really care that he's satisfied that the world's going to remember him now for being this genius musician. I don't care. He's an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) 
Frankie, you could tease me for this, but like, you know, that movie came out. I was, I was 13. It was probably popular on cable by the time I was 14. Six years later, I'm 1920. I remember I went to go see that movie on opening night with the black t-shirt, with no sleeves, with my friend Diane in Rockville Center on Merrick Road. Like, I'll always remember that, but that's, you know, maybe now that you described the movie, probably thinking that's a little pathetic. <laughs> no, yeah, you you enjoyed the movie. You went yeah, to I see thought it. there are movies that, like, it's not the same thing, obviously. It is kind of in some ways, but it's definitely a different tone. Like, this movie for you is like Spice World for me, essentially. Where I genuinely love Spice World, despite the fact that I don't think it's a perfect movie by any way, shape, or form. But I genuinely love Spice World because I grew up with the Spice Girls and I love them and I love the movie. And it's funny and it's weird and it's fucked up and it's dumb. But objectively, I know it's not great. But I don't care because it's Spice World and I don't care. But, um, yeah, that's Eddie and the Cruisers, you guys. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for tearing apart Father's No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so let's start with our guest. Dad, what is your rating out of five stars for Eddie and the Cruisers? You know, I hear what you guys are saying, and, and, I, and I know you guys are going to rate it much lower. My, my heart and soul and, you know, music being the language of the soul and having such an impact on my life. I have to give it five stars just because of the connection I have to, to the characters and the music and, and my life. So, so five stars for me. Okay. That's perfectly fine. Definitely understand that. Frankie, what would you rate it at the five stars? <laughs> well, not five. Um, I'm literally going half of that. I'm doing two and a half out of five stars. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't good. So that's why it's two and a half. I would never watch it again, but I would listen to the music again. I am also at a two and a half. I do think there is enough here that you could actually do a good remake. You need somebody who's actually charismatic and not Michael Parry. Yes. I think you also need like experienced directors. Yeah. This director, Martin Davidson, this was clearly like a passion project for him and he wasn't like an experienced director. He was more concerned with getting the message out that he wanted to get out. And maybe he didn't focus as much as on like the story structure of it and like making a good story with good characters. He was just more concerned. I'm guessing with, getting the message out about how he feels about the music industry and just music in general, which I mean, I would think that he, he did, I guess that at least he, he managed to do. Again, that was Eddie and the cruisers. Dad, thank you for coming on for father's day and uh, sharing this movie with uh, our audience. Thank you so much for having me. Happy father's day to all the fathers out there. Thank you for being such an amazing son and making me feel like a great father. Um, so I just wanted to say that publicly, but you can edit it out Aww. if you want. <laughs> I love you too. And uh, it's always fun having you on, even if we don't agree with the movie. Yeah, it's cool. No, I feel like eventually we're going to have him on for a movie we all agree on. I, I think it gives, it gives a little depth to the show, like to disagree as well. I know. I like when I don't agree with people because it makes the conversation more interesting. Yeah, I think this was a, a vivid conversation. I think it was fun. Uh, so next week, 
I will be introducing Scott to yet another movie that has a lot of strong music feels, a lot of strong music vibes around it. But until then, this has been Shoot the Flick. I'm Frankie Sparks. I'm Scott Eisenberg. And I'm Scott's dad, Hal. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure you check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Shoot the Flick and check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. And make sure you come back next week for our rock and rolling operatic movie adventure. Eddie lives. Does he have to? Soon there were no just to a free